Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. The Roads of America Stretching across the country like stone spider webs, these well-traveled arteries are scary enough without adding malevolent spirits to the equation. Whether it's the highways packed with speeding cars and trucks jostling for position, or it's just you winding down a lonely back road with nothing but the tunes on the radio and the thoughts in your head, it's enough to riddle a person with anxiety. On top of all that, if you're one of the unlucky ones to end up on the many haunted roads in the United States, especially if you didn't plan on being on that road, then you'll have an entirely different story to tell when you arrive at your destination and they ask, How was the drive? West Milford, New Jersey. Road? Clinton. Clinton? Clinton Clinton Road. That didn't sound as ominous as I wanted to. Clinton Road. Located in West Milford, New Jersey. Up in Passaic County. Clinton Road runs in a generally north-to-south direction, beginning at Route 23 and running for roughly 10 miles north to Upper Greenwood Lake. Clinton Road received notoriety for being home to one of the country's longest traffic lights, It occurs at a double intersection where Route 23 crosses Clinton Road, and if you don't make the light, it can cause motorists to wait an entire five minutes before getting the green again. Truly the most terrifying thing I'll ever talk about on this podcast. There are very few houses along the road, and much of the adjoining property is undeveloped publicly owned woodlands, and the road itself is a narrow two-lane highway that receives very little maintenance. It is not part of New Jersey's county route system, and until fairly recently, was unpaved through some of its length, connecting two areas of minimal population and growth, and thus having little traffic at even the busiest times of day. The road and the land around it have gained attention over the years, as the area rife with legends of paranormal occurrences such as sightings of ghosts, strange creatures, and gathering of witches and Satanists. It is also rumored that professional killers dispose of bodies in the surrounding woods, with one recorded case of this occurring. In May of 1983, a human body was found in the woods close to the road. The story goes that a cyclist going down the road discovered the body after investigating a vulture feasting at a spot in the nearby trees. 
An autopsy found that the man had died of foul play, remarking something initially puzzling, ice crystals in blood vessels near his heart. His interior organs also had decayed at a rate far slower than his skin. Pathologists concluded that someone had frozen his body after death in an attempt to mislead investigators into believing he died at a later time than he actually did. The man was identified as Daniel Deppner, a local criminal and car thief who was involved in mafia activities in nearby Rockland County, New York. The investigation ultimately led to the 1986 arrest of the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, a hitman and New Jersey native being involved in Rockland organized crime, who confessed to being the killer. Michael Shannon plays Kuklinski in the 2012 film The Iceman, loosely based on the book of the same name. Probably the most well-known story of Clinton Road involves that of a young boy and his dog. The story goes that the boy and his dog were walking Clinton Road when a speeding car, coming winding around the street, hit the boy, knocking him off the small bridge they were crossing and into the creek bed below, killing him. It is said that the dog stayed with the boy and wouldn't leave his side even after police discovered the body. Standing over the boy protecting him from anyone who came near, the police had to shoot and kill the dog to be able to collect the boy and return him to his family. If you go to that bridge and throw coins over, sometimes the boy throws them back. Some people have even reported what feels like someone pushing them out of the road if they happen to be standing there when a car is coming, perhaps protecting them from a similar fate. The boy's dog has been spotted in the woods off Clinton Road as well. People have caught glimpses of a massive black creature on all fours with glowing green eyes running through the trees. And the dog isn't the only creature to inhabit that land. Strange creatures from hellhounds to monkeys and unidentifiable hybrids are alleged to have been seen at night. If not of supernatural origin, they are said to have been survivors of jungle habitat, which have managed to survive and crossbreed. Jungle Habitat was a Warner Brothers-owned theme park that opened in the summer of 1972 and closed in October 1976. By November 1972, the park had half a million paid visitors. The park contained over 1,500 animals. It consisted of a drive through section and a walk-through section. The drive through section was an animal safari park, and the walk-through section area was called Jungle Junction. The park's last operating weekend was Halloween 1976. After the park closed... Newspaper reported that several live animals, as well as animal carcasses, including an elephant, had been left there to decay. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise. 
by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Lake George, New York. Road? Unknown. In late autumn of 2009, Justin and Jennifer, or JJ as they were obnoxiously called by their friends, were on their way back to their motel following Jennifer's cousin's wedding. They were cruising along in Justin's 1991 Buick LeSabre when the phone's navigation cut out. They zigged when they should have zagged and ended up on a windy back road somewhere outside of the small lake town of Bolton Landing. Justin and Jennifer were as close as a couple could be without sharing the same body. They shared the same hobbies, same friends, they finished each other's sentences, they were nauseatingly perfect. With Jennifer's iPod plugged into the cassette tape adapter, they were listening to Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil, and they were having a playful argument as to what year the song came out. Justin insisting it was a newer song because, for some reason or another in 2009, it was all over the radio constantly. Jennifer argued that you can tell it was an 80s song because they sang the song like this. They were in the middle of an impromptu car dance-off when Jennifer, doing her best robot, but as Justin always critiqued, was a little bit too jerky, fired her phone out of her hand and into the backseat, disconnecting it from the radio and killing the music. Justin let out a long boo as she climbed into the back to fetch her phone from the floor of the backseat. Once she found the phone and got up to climb back into the front is when she noticed the lights from the headlights directly behind them. Illuminating Justin's face from the rearview mirror, the person in this truck was inches from their bumper. What is this guy's problem? Justin said as he rolled the window down and waved the guy around him. Jennifer was back up front and nervously telling Justin, Just let him go around you. The truck stayed tailgating, flashing its brights on and off. Justin didn't know what the guy wanted him to do. It was a windy mountain road. They didn't have a shoulder to pull off to. Justin would have gladly pulled over somewhere to let this person go around him if he could. The truck on their bumper, flashing its high beams and now laying on its horn, Jennifer decided that she was calling the police. The dial to 911 returned with the familiar call-failed beeping. They had no cell service, no GPS service on a mountain road where the only thing they could be sure of was that they were driving south down the mountain. With the roar from the truck's engine behind them, it lurched into the oncoming lane and proceeded to pass them. Justin shot the guy a thumbs up, while Jen, laying across Justin to get as close to the driver's side window as possible, gave the truck the finger. Jennifer sank back into her seat and let out a breathy sigh. (sighs) What was that about? Justin responded with, I guess we weren't going fast enough for Captain Caveman over there. He was probably in a rush to get his meth. The rest of the drive was pretty uneventful. The mountain road was long and dark, and minus the two cars that passed them going north up the road, it was lonely too. It was when they reached the bottom of the road that they saw a gas station. They decided to stop in and ask for directions, and maybe to see if they had a phone they could use. That's when they saw the truck parked next to the pumps. Jennifer pointed it out. Look, Mr. I'm in a rush needed a fill-up before he can get back on the road and continue being an asshole. Justin was eager to get whatever information he could and get back on the road, and had zero interest in getting into a road rage fight in the middle of the night in his rented suit. The gas station looked empty. He couldn't see anyone inside. The outside fluorescences buzzed and flickered as they parked next to the other pump. They might as well fill up while they're here. Justin gave Jen a peck on the cheek, jumped out of the car, opened up his gas tank, and grabbed the nozzle to the pump. It was when he went to swipe his card that he saw the little post-it note that was taped to the credit card keypad that read, Please see attendant. Justin made his way around the hood of the car and nauseatingly blew a kiss at Jennifer. She sat in the car, slapping her phone against her leg, trying to force it to get service, and watched Justin as he entered the gas station. A few minutes have gone by now at this point, and Justin isn't back yet. She decides that she's going to go look for him, and also see if they had a bathroom that she can use. She had to pee something awful. She still had a slight buzz going from the wedding, and also wanted to see if they had a vending machine, so she can grab a bag of chips or something to hold her over until they got back to the motel, 
where they can really go to hell with themselves and order dominoes. She reached the door to enter the station's small store area, which was nothing more than a few vending machines, a counter with a cash register, a lot of scratch-off display, and a door in the back that led to a garage area. Jennifer got an uneasy feeling. It was the silence. She opened the door, and the gentle bells that hung from the top startled her as she stepped through. She looked around, and she didn't see anyone. Justin? She called out as she walked in the room. This isn't funny, babe. She made her way to the back of the station and walked into the door that led to the garage. It was pitch black back there. It took her eyes a second to adjust from going to the brightly lit store, and I use that word as loose as possible, to the mechanic shop in the back. There was no one back there either. This was getting weird, and Jen's anxiety was increasing, as well as her need to pee. It was when she turned around to re-enter the clerk's area where she spotted it, leaking from behind the counter. Was that blood? Throwing all her fears and anxieties aside, she rushed for the counter and threw her body over it, shouting, Justin! as her stomach hit the counter, knocking the air out of her lungs. For a second, she thought she was in a dream. There's no way this could be happening in reality. This was the stuff from movies. But laying in a pool of blood behind the counter was the gas station clerk. I mean, she assumes that's who he was. He was wearing a shirt with the no-name logo on the breast that was the same as the logo on the pumps. His throat was slashed open. Blood was gathered on the floor around him in a black, viscous puddle. But it was what was opposite the clerk that gave her the biggest fright. There was a man on top of another man. On top of Justin. Laying feet to feet with the clerk, this hulking man had Justin pinned down to the ground. Propped up on top of him, with both his hands pressed over Justin's face, with what looked like a damp rag. That's when the man wearing a black ski mask himself turned up toward Jennifer. Jen stumbled backward, tripped over her feet, and planted herself hard on her tailbone. The man was up like a shot and now standing behind the counter. He turned gracefully toward the employee-only cutout and started walking towards it. Not running. Walking. Calmly. Like going for an afternoon stroll. Jennifer, on all fours making sort of a jerky crab walk backwards toward the door, was slipping on the linoleum, struggling to make it to her feet. Once she was up, she was yanking at the door almost off its hinges. The bell slammed against the door and then the wall in a desperate clang of metal. The man was around the counter. Jen, frantically, was running to the car, screaming for anyone within the earshot to help her, pleading. Please, please, oh God, oh God. Jennifer reaches the car and slams her body into the passenger door before she swings it open and hurls herself into it. She crawls into the driver's seat, sits up, grabs for the keys to twists her wrists up all in one quick succession. Nothing. The ignition doesn't turn. No keys. Justin must have taken them with him. Jen, crying in deep, ugly sobs, drops her head to the steering wheel, just as the back door is thrown open and she is yanked back by her hair, and a large hand with a damp rag covers her face. Now, this is part of the story, depending on who's telling it, can either end there, and the moral of the story is, don't get lost, or it can continue, and you can find out what exactly happened to JJ. And since I'm telling the story, let's continue, shall we? Jennifer comes to laying in a wooded area by herself. She is a little groggy and has a terrible headache, but she is no worse for wear. It takes her a minute to collect her bearings. The events of the evening all come rushing back to her, and she starts up in a panic and jumps to her feet. Justin! She calls out. Starting to pace in frustration and fear, she starts to scream. Justin! Hello? What the fuck is going on? As the tears come, she crumbles to the ground. Knees to her chest rocking back and forth, looking around with a desperate want in her eyes. This has to be a dream. A terrible dream. 
She was convinced that she would wake up next to Justin in their motel room any second now, and they would get up and go for breakfast at that pancake place they saw while driving up. The Lonely Wolf or Lone Bull, whatever it was called. And this would all be make-believe. But the dream never ended. Just then, she hears a noise in the distance and jerks her head in that direction. Hello? Standing up in her now filthy and tattered evening dress, she wipes her tears and leaves a dirt smear down one of her cheeks. Walking in the direction of the noise, she asks, Justin? Please, God, somebody. As she makes her way through the clearing, she sees the back of a man. Crouched down away from her, she immediately recognizes this person. It's Justin. Oh, thank God. She says, Justin, are you okay? Where are we? She continues making her way toward him, but something isn't right. First of all, he isn't responding in any way to her calls. Second, his body looks like it's vibrating. He's making tight little jerks with his head that are becoming more clear as she gets closer. He looks as if he's restraining something in front of him. Jen, getting increasingly upset at his lack of response, she shouts, Justin, what is going on? Justin jerks his head around. His face is covered in blood. And is that a raccoon in his hands? I mean, it's just a mess of fur, blood, and meat now, but yes, that was a raccoon. His eyes were blank. The engine was running, but there was nobody behind the wheel, if you get what I'm saying. It's like he's reverted into some primal animal. He slowly starts to look away from her as he brings his attention back to his prey. He lets out a snarl and pulls the animal close to his chest, protecting his meal like a dog protects its bowl. Jen clutches her hands to her breast in disbelief. She is now cautiously making her way toward the man that she loves so dearly. Her voice calm, with almost a loving tone, she weeps. Babe, please, it's me. What's happening? I don't understand. None of this makes any sense. Instantly, her frustration bubbles up again and her voice becomes shrill. What the fuck is going on? What are you doing? As she is yelling at her former lover, she grabs him by the shoulder and yanks him around. In one motion, he drops his meal and pounces on top of her, pinning her to the ground as she lets out screams of terror and pain. She is frantically trying to fight him off as he sinks his teeth into her shoulder and pulls off a chunk of flesh with a globbing splash of blood. Jen reaches up and digs her nails into his right eye and tears down his cheek and is able to push him off and get to her feet. As she runs off into the distance, he is squirming on the ground, letting out sounds that are similar to a dog crying. His pain is only temporary as he gains his composure and gets to his feet. He lets out a feral roar and makes his chase, keeping his body low to the ground, almost like at times he wants to run on all fours. Jennifer is now sprinting through the woods, constantly looking over her shoulder to see if Justin, no, that creature that was Justin, she wouldn't think of the man that she loved, the man that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with was anywhere present in that monster. Running, nursing her shoulder, blood pouring down her body, she started to slow down, breathing heavy, when she glanced over her shoulder again and saw him. He was gaining on her. She had to do something, and something fast. She began zigzagging between trees, jumping over stumps, down branches and roots exposed from the earth. She kept circling to her right, knowing that she blinded him in that eye, and was hoping he wouldn't see some of the things that she has been so careful to dodge. And as luck would have it, he did just that. Justin seemed to step in one of those holes between roots, and he collapsed to the ground in a heap. He instantly tried to get back up to continue the chase, but he went down as soon as he tried to put weight on that now injured foot. He seems to have broken his ankle. Letting out yelps of pain, he is writhing around on the floor, crying like a wounded animal. Jennifer, seeing that he hobbled himself, stops and starts to head back toward him. Before she gets too close, she picks up the biggest branch that she can find and approaches him, dragging it behind her like a club. She slowly makes her way closer and closer until she's just about on top of him. That's when she raises the enormous branch to her shoulder and clutches it in the batter's position. 
Justin, still squirming around on the floor, not able to put any weight on the leg, is still trying to get at her. Jen looks down at Justin. With tears streaming down her face, she just whispers, I'm sorry. I love you. Justin makes one more half attempt to lunge when she brings the branch down in a high arc and breaks it in half over his face. She continues crying, standing over her former lover, but only for a moment. She's still lost in a place that she doesn't remember how she got to. She drops the rest of the branch and begins to run on. She continues to check over her shoulder just in case he was somehow back on his feet when she noticed something odd. The woods were getting darker. The darkness seemed to be sweeping over the wooded area behind her, making its way toward her. How is this possible? It's almost as if someone is shutting lights off, switch by switch. She quickens her pace, trying to outrun the darkness that is just about right on top of her now. Running, looking behind her, when just then, smack! Jennifer ran directly into a cinder block wall. Looking side to side, this wall seemed to stretch on forever. Taking a few steps back to look up, she could see no top. The darkness that she was so worried about a second ago caught up to her, and she is now standing in the pitch black. But it's in the darkness that she noticed a light coming from the wall about 20 yards to the left of where she's standing. Jen makes her way toward the light, left hand clutching at her bleeding shoulder, right hand pressed up against the wall as she walks aside it, fighting back tears, trying to keep it together to speak, she says. Hello, please, someone help me. I don't know where I am. I want to go home. I just want to see my mom. Please? Anyone? She's just mumbling now, pleading with anyone who will listen as she approaches the light. But this light, well, isn't really a light at all. It's... a window? Standing in front of it as light from beyond the window pours into the darkness that engulfs her, she fights to adjust her eyes. That's when she makes out what looks like men. Two men. Standing in what looks to be a lab. They both had on safety goggles and half-face respirators. One was typing on a computer, while the other was shuffling through papers on a clipboard when Jen slammed her bloody hand against the glass and started begging. Please help me. You have to help me. Something's happened to Justin. He's hurt. I had to hurt him. Please. The men look up briefly, then just continue going through the motions. Jen begins to pound on the glass, leaving bloody hand and fist prints all over the window. She starts screaming. What the f- you doing why are you just looking at me what the fuck is wrong with you i'm hurt my boyfriend tried to fucking eat me get me the fuck out of here she continues to pound on the window with no reaction from the men she looks around and spots a stick picks it up and starts hammering the window with it the glass does not break not even a chip after hammering for a little bit she just gives up drops the stick and rests her face and arms against the glass crying she begs Please, don't let me die here. One of the men seemed to take interest now. He makes his way towards the window and locks eyes with Jennifer. Looking back at him, tears streaming down her face, cutting trails through the dirt and blood, she begins to open her mouth to plead with this man. Just as Justin grabs her from behind, pinning her against the glass and taking a bite out of her neck. He rips out flesh and blood splashes the window as he drags her to the floor, her bloody hands streaking the glass as she falls. The man behind the window leans in closer and just looks down. From the pages of the Glen Falls Chronicle, December 4th, 2015. Troy Merrick disappeared November 15th, 2015, Warren County, Lake George, New York. Body never located. In the fall of 2015, Troy Merrick, age 72, walked into the woods south of Brant Lake and was never seen again. 
Merrick lived in Warren County and was out that Sunday with a group of six friends and family members who were hunting near Lily Pond in the area of the state land that is a part of the Lake George Wild Forest. The older members of the group, four of them, were watchers and were in a near vertical line, while the younger hunters used the path around the lake to drive the deer to the watchers as part of the drive. Troy was supposed to stay in one spot as members of the group walked through the woods to push deer toward him. But when they arrived at the location where he was supposed to be, he was gone, without a trace of him or his belongings, and no sign of any deer were found that day. He was wearing duck boots, camouflage pants and a coat, gloves, and a red and black checkered hat that he'd worn for decades. He carried a rifle and a walkie-talkie. The huge search over several weeks involving more than 300 professionals and volunteers on some days, assisted by dogs, divers, and several helicopters, found no clues, including no sign of his rifle. More than four square miles were searched, with a larger area being searched by air with the aid of a helicopter from the State Police Aviation Unit. Searchers walked through the woods, no matter how thick they were, including swamps and they checked nearby roads, but there was absolutely nothing. Places were tied off with string to box off specific areas to allow a detailed search of every grid zone. It was described as a spider's web of string in the forest. Given his age, searches were baffled as he could not have gotten far from his original location, and some said it was weird that they found no sign of wildlife. The search area had many caves, crevices, and other hazards. The FBI arrived on the fourth day, November 19th. This was unusual as the FBI never got involved in these types of searches. Investigators have said there have been no indications of foul play. Troy's wife Megan said, The FBI told me something isn't right with this case. They don't know what, but they won't share any of their theories if they have them. The FBI said until they make a discovery, they're never going to know. He'd been in the woods since he was a boy, and if he'd gotten lost, he would have cut a piece of his jacket and tied it to a tree and done other things that he'd learned. The only thing I can think is that maybe someone came by in a quad and hurt him by accident, she said got scared and drove him out of there. I keep praying that they'll find him, so I'll have some closure. I keep worrying that I didn't tell him I loved him the last day I saw him alive. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod.